thank you for having me here today. I am quite excited. And um, when I was told what the, the lectionary was this week, I, I love these stories. I mean, Genesis is just, I know I shouldn't be particular, but I love the book of Genesis. Because it's all, the soap operas have nothing on the book of Genesis. I mean, I've not really been a watcher of soap operas, but I don't know, sleeping with your sister and selling her to a king and lying about it, that's, that's Abraham and Sarah, by the way. Um, no, our matriarch and patriarch. Um, so I was really glad to have this in the lectionary today. And I was trying to pull, pull these thoughts together. Um, so, and I'm not giving my sermon yet, I'm just giving a little preface. Um, in Judaism, we look at the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and we just chop it up into 54 equal, not equal, 54 sections, and we just read the same section throughout the year. So I know in October or November, we're gonna read Genesis, and right now we're towards the end of Exodus, the next month, and it's always the same. So I looked at this lectionary and went, why these? <laughs> why, why Genesis 45? Why Psalm 37? Why are we skipping verses? Um, and I have no answers. Um, but I tried to find an answer of what the connection was. So hopefully that will come out. So ask any therapist, and they will tell you that no one can tell you how to feel. Only you can do that. Only we are in charge of our emotions. And for those of us that are free, we are also the only ones in charge of our actions. No one can tell us how to feel or act. Only we can. We recognize that there are results, consequences, or rewards for our actions, but they're still ours to make. If you don't want to show up at your job, that's your choice. Just like it's your boss's choice to hire or fire you. And if you want to feel hurt, by what someone said, that's up to you. If you want to feel happy by their words or their deeds, that's completely your choice. We cannot use the excuse we were just following orders because we have personal autonomy, even in the most rigid of careers. And this is true for words, emotions, and actions. We recognize in our society that we are in charge of ourselves. So why in the Bible does it tell us in this week's lectionary, al do not be vexed. So when I read through these verses of Genesis and Psalm 37, that phrase or the synonymous ones, that's a question for translation <laughs> to be addressed later, right? <laughs> do not be vexed, do not be disturbed. Um, they kept coming up over and over again. And in English, vex feels kind of old and not oft-used phrase. So what does it mean? And I have to say, Merriam-Webster does a really good job. I mean, that is their job, but sometimes <laughs> it sort of falls flat. But this one works. Vex implies greater provocation stronger disturbance than annoy, and usually connotes anger, but also sometimes perplexity and anxiety. 
A simple anxiety, a simple example, might be when you're doing home repair. For example, the smallest detail in my home is the light bulb sockets. In every room are different sizes. That means when a light bulb goes out in the living room, we have to find the exact light bulb fixture socket for that one. And I had no idea that there were that many different sizes of fittings out there. Imagine every room in your home having a different socket. We're very vexed by this, annoyed, <laughs> angered, and perplexed. Who would build a house this way? No, seriously. If you're going to replace a light fixture, just make it the same as all the other ones in your house. Your future homeowner will appreciate it. And this is an elementary illustration compared to the situations our biblical characters find themselves. But when my husband gets on the ladder to change the light bulb and he gets vexed, I immediately find myself wanting to say, don't be vexed. But I stop myself. Because only we are in charge of our emotions. And I want to introduce these biblical figures to self-help psychology books, which give us the permission to feel however we feel. There's no such thing as a good emotion or a bad emotion. They just are. It's simply how you feel. So why then does this text continually restate that we are not to be vexed. In Psalm 37, the primary focus is on the wrongdoer. As it says in verse 7, Do not be vexed by the prospering man who carries out his schemes. And back in Genesis, our protagonist Joseph has had many challenges in his young life. From being the favorite of Jacob, his father, as demonstrated by his colorful tunic, to being thrown in a pit by his brothers, from being sold into slavery in Egypt to becoming a high political advisor to Pharaoh. And at a point of reconciliation, Joseph too tells his brothers, as we just heard, do not be distressed or reproach yourselves because you sold me here. Perhaps insinuating in this parallel that the brothers are the wrongdoers. The psychology at play seems to be that good people are perplexed by or irritated or irked by those who do wrong. And this certainly hasn't changed in the millennia that we have been reading this text. To this day, we still wonder when we're confronted with bad behavior. When a person does something that we deem as bad, oftentimes we take it personally or we become judgmental. We begin to feel based on their actions. But actions are just actions. And we're in charge of our emotions. So more than the text telling us how to feel, I believe this text is telling us not to judge others. To not let their actions affect our emotions, our emotional and our spiritual core. We cannot change another person, nor are we to judge them based on actions we perceive as bad. But who are we to know? So I want to tell you a story which is attributed to many cultures, and it goes like this. 
A farmer and her son had a beloved stallion who helped the family earn a living. One day, the horse ran away. And their neighbor said, your horse ran away. What terrible, terrible luck. And the farmer replied, who knows what is good and what is bad. A few days later, the horse returns home, leading a few wild mares along back with it. And the neighbor shouted, what luck? Your horse has returned and brought with it more horses. And the farmer replied, who knows what is good or what is bad. And later that week, the farmer's son was trying to break in one of these mares, and the mare threw him to the ground, breaking his leg, and the villagers cried, oh, your son broke his leg, what terrible luck. And the farmer replied, who knows what is good and what is bad. And then a few weeks later, soldiers from the National Army marched through town, forcing all the able-bodied young men sign up for the army. And they did not take the farmer's son because he was still recovering from his broken leg. And the friends shouted, what luck, your boy has been spared. To which the farmer replied, who knows what is good and what is bad. And so the story continues. Who are we? to know. We don't know. We can't know. And perhaps if we could, we might be God. <laughs> and we're not. And at first blush, each of these situations in which the farmer finds herself appears black and white as good or as bad. Bad luck breaking your leg. That's not good. But the following events force a re-evaluation of the previous events. And we know this intimately because we have our cliche, hindsight is 2020. And thinking of my own life, about 10 years ago, I had a skiing accident, which kept me home for a couple months. And in that time, did not go to work. And I had a good time, a good chunk of time just to sit and think and stew and wine and a pity party. I did it, I had a pity party. I invited all my friends. No one came. But in that moment of sitting in my chair, staring at the same wall, unable to get out of my house, I had the inkling, you know, we have those thoughts. And as one of the songs that we just heard today said, um, a seed becomes an apple tree. I had a seed and an inkling of changing my careers from analytical chemist to rabbi. So was my accident good or bad? Neither, it just was. It is what I did with that time and the events which actually matter. So in the continuation of the Joseph story, he points to the famine which has devastated the area and which is to last another five years. People from all over the region have flooded into Egypt, where Joseph is the one who gets to ration out the food to all the refugees, including his family. This is why God sent Joseph ahead of his brothers, to ensure their survival by his high ranking in the Egyptian court. If we read the story 
linearly and literally, none of us could have imagined that a naked Joseph, who was left in a pit for dead, would have ended up with him as the right-hand man to Pharaoh a decade later. That negative action of the bully brothers is what saved all the Israelites in a famine. One could then argue that the results of them coming to Egypt was slavery, as it tells us at the beginning of the book of Exodus. A new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Let us deal shrewdly with them. So they set taskmasters over them to oppress them. Slavery is fairly clearly bad. <laughs> None of us would question that. However, if we continue in the, the thinking of our farmer, we also see that when the Israelites are freed and they're sent into the wilderness, they received the Torah and firmly established a covenant with God. So who are we to know what is good and what is bad? We can be judgmental over Pharaoh's actions. We have no control over them. We may wonder why he was the way he was, which is perceivably bad. However, we must not allow ourselves to be vexed by wrongdoers. Rather, we ought to do good ourselves. But you might be wondering, isn't that opposite of what I just said, contrary? because we just got finished saying how we don't know what is good or what is bad? <laughs> so how can we know? We cannot judge another in their actions. We can judge ourselves. In our hearts, we know what is a good action and what is a bad action. Our farmer did not have control over those situations, so she couldn't identify good or bad. So it is when we have control that we can assign the moniker good or bad. How do we know when that is? I want to tell you another quick story of Rabbi Hillel from the Babylonian Talmud that was written down about 1,500 years ago. Fairly new in Jewish history. <laughs> and he helps us understand this concept. So a person comes along and this person says, I want to convert to Judaism, but he has a stipulation. He asks of his Jewish teachers to teach him Judaism while they're standing on one foot. Seriously? Everyone just laughed at him and told him, get out of here. That is until he came to Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Hillel obliged the unusual request. This, right? Stand on one foot. Are you kidding me? You tried doing that for a long time. But he obliged. So what is he going to say while standing on one foot? And he says, That which is hateful to, unto you, do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole of Torah. The rest is commentary. Go forth and learn. The man was impressed, convinced, and he converted to Judaism. So how can we understand this story? 
I don't personally understand this passage to therefore mean that we ought to hold ourselves up away from the world in order to study scripture all day long. Because what is Torah after all? It's the laws of living in relationship with God and laws of living in relationship with each other. That's it. 330 pages boil down to those two things. So when we're told, go forth and learn, we must learn what those laws are asking of us. Book learning, as it were. And as we're all aware, that kind of learning only takes us so far. Take, for example, a rainbow. I am so glad it's sunny today. I know I'm not alone in this. It has been dreary. I have yet to see the rainbow, but I'm waiting. You can learn everything you can about the different wavelengths of light and the refraction properties of water. You can know just how much water is needed to create a rainbow and how much light needs to shine in too. But you will never know the beauty and the awe unless you experience it firsthand. You will never know the peace which comes after the storm or the feeling of just how big the sky is when you witness a rainbow arcing over the sky's entirety. So too with the Torah. We can learn all the laws in the book, but until we go out and live them, we haven't learned them. So if we boil the laws down to relationships and we look at relationships between us and others, how do we know the other? There's only so much book learning that we can do, especially when it comes to interpersonal affairs. In order to help us answer this, let's review what a famous 20th century Presbyterian minister has to say. Mr. Rogers is famous for his request. Won't you be my neighbor? How well do you know all the lyrics of this inviting ditty? He continues and croons, I have always wanted a neighbor just like you. I've always wanted to live in a neighborhood with you. And clearly we don't take him at face value. He doesn't want to constantly pick up all of his things, all his material possessions, and place them all around the world. No. He's talking attitude and treatment. Mr. Rogers wanted all of us to see the beauty in the day and the beauty in each other. The quiet reliability of a neighbor. And he wanted that with everyone he met, regardless of any fence we might have constructed between us. We ought not to do what is hateful to our neighbor. We can only do or not do what is hateful to ourselves because only we are in charge of our emotions. And yet, perhaps there is an entity which can help us identify this notion of being vexed. Both Rabbi Hillel and Mr. Rogers felt confident that one of the ways of accessing a relationship with God is through relationships with others. 
So if we do not know what vexing means to us, we can turn to God and ask for help. In a poem written by a 20th century rabbi turned lawyer, he didn't like the politics of the pulpit in the 1930s. <laughs> rabbi Mitchell Salem Fisher says this, and uh, just a quick note, in Judaism, we have lots of different terms for God. I don't think that's unusual for any religion. Right? We access God in a different way, using our very limited vocabulary. I know that in Christian churches, we use Holy Spirit, we use Jesus, we'll use God, we'll use Lord, Father. All these bring up a different emotion because we're limited by language. And in Judaism, one of those words for God is Adonai which literally translates to my Lord. So it's both personal, but also distant. So Adonai. Disturb us, Adonai. Ruffle us from our complacency. Make us dissatisfied. <coughs> dissatisfied with the peace of ignorance, the quietude which arises from the shunning of the horror, the defeat, the bitterness, the poverty physical and spiritual of humans. Shock us, Adonai. Deny to us the false Sabbath, which gives us delusions of satisfaction amid a world of war and hatred. Wake us, God, and shake us from the sweet and sad poignancies rendered by half-forgotten melodies and prayers of yesteryears. Make us know that the border of the sanctuary is not the border of living. And the walls of your temples are not shelters from the winds of truth, justice, and reality. Disturb us, God, and vex us. Let not your Sabbath be a day of torpor and slumber. Let it be a time to be stirred and spurred to action. You can hear that he asks God to help us not be numb, giving us the ability to go out and do good in this world. And he realizes, as we all do, that from time to time, we need to be shaken. No one can tell you how to feel. It is not for us to judge the behavior of others. But we can ask God to see the humanity in each other, and encourage us to take action when we see that which is hateful to us being done to our neighbors. We need to be shaken to see in the world which will engage us with our neighbors. We're not meant to do so with judgmentalism, but with goodness in our hearts. And we ask God for help with Oftentimes, we have blinders on for our own lives. So we need to look into our hearts, into our communities, and with our God. So if we are being vexed, and here's a rabbinical term, by the crap around us, <laughs> have God help us be vexed. To encourage us to turn those feelings into action. Now, every one of us is different. 
There's about 60 or so of us in the room and there's 60 different actions we can take. And it doesn't matter what action you take, all that matters is that you take an action. <laughs> Perhaps for something, your action might be that you write letters or make calls to, your elect, to our elected political officials about policy changes. Perhaps you provide food and material goods for the vulnerable and those in need. Perhaps you tutor and do homework help for kids or adults. Perhaps you give a hug to someone feeling down or soup to a fellow parishioner. However you help, as long as you follow your heart and do not do what is hateful to you, I believe that we will bring goodness into this world. So may we learn ourselves and learn our neighbors May we not inflict hate on ourselves or on our neighbors. May we take time to bring goodness into this world, one good act at a time. May this be our blessing. May it be so. Amen. Amen.